Nevis. And I'm Tegan Aleen. And um, today we're talking about a figure that I'm pretty sure is well beloved by a lot of us Hugely, at this point. Yeah. 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 If you like anything mystical and magical, you've probably heard of this chap. I'll call him a chap. I don't know if he's old or young. <laughs> There's lots of stories around that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some stories claim that he's born of a virgin. Others say that he's sired by an incubus, which is where he gets his supernatural powers and abilities. He's a shapeshifter, a prophet, a kingmaker, a wild beast man of the forest. Um <laughs> And has a literary career spanning 1,500 years. You know, Merlin. Ta-da! Merlin Ta-da, has put Merlin. this word in the stone. <laughs> he built Stonehenge. He knew the truth behind the Holy Grail, which no one does. And he discovered the elixir of life. And people would say, beware Merlin, for he knows all things by the devil's craft. But in other stories, he's also good and almost Christ-like. Yes. So, it's so Merlin. Merlin. What a character. And I think he's such a, um, an archetype almost for like wizards that followed in his footsteps in later stories and other things as well. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I mean, he was really, well, I'm not going to say he was the first wizard or magician that was ever put to paper, but he certainly became famous before a lot of others. <laughs> kind of iconic, like not even kind of, Merlin is iconic in a way yeah. the way that these stories have managed to survive and be passed down even if they're all kind of over the place in a sense uh he remains kind of steadfast at one point or another in the story Merlin yeah, exactly is, is the magical wizard figure and it's very interesting because almost like in all of the stuff that we have done on this podcast so far this is the first time we really explore like a magical male on a on Mm-hmm. or a deeper level like we're often looking at the feminine stuff a lot of the feminine stuff has been you know shifted oppressed uh, put away over the years and I think we even see that in the Arthurian legends as well but it's interesting yeah, definitely to kind of, yeah but it's interesting to kind of explore <laughs> explore like this um, incredible male um, magical presence right I guess with that in mind, we should probably pick up where we left off in terms of the legends. So obviously there's this group of legends that's kind of been compiled from different authors, from different periods of time. I think like as early, we have a lot of stories in the fifth century. We have a lot or sixth century. We have a lot of stories in the coming back around into the 12th century. And in the 12th century is really when the stories start to get filled out. Um, by different authors, uh, poets, things to that Bards. nature. Bards. <laughs> so where we left off in the stories, I think we kind of covered his uh, Arthur's birth story, his mm-hmm. origin story, and then the sword in the stone, right? Yeah. So the next legend that kind of comes after that is very interesting. And it kind of, it starts off in a weird way. So there's a woman <laughs> A mysterious woman who just shows up. Of course there is. There's always Hello. a mysterious woman <laughs> who just shows up at um at Arthur's castle. Because you know, people can just roll up to a castle in, in medieval. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no guards. Anyone no can just roll up to a castle, of course. Yeah. So this woman <laughs> comes up to the castle and she asks for a place to stay for the night. She needs a place to to sleep. 
she's out traveling and Arthur is very, um, finds her very alluring. So he agrees. And the, the legend, like the overview of the legend just basically says they spend the night together. Oh, la la. Ooh, la la. Read that into that what you want. And then when she, when he wakes up the next day, she's she's gone. She's disappeared. She's gone on her way. And he just remembers it as like this incredibly enticing woman came into his life for a night and left. And I mean, you knowing know, what we know now, <laughs> it sounds very French. <laughs> sure. But also, hey, not a bad way to spend the night. It's not like he no, saw somebody fun. out. Someone saw him his out for the first time in a long time, or maybe ever since we've been talking about things. It's a woman seeking a guy and then leaving the next morning before he wakes up. True, that's <laughs> so so true, and that is gonna take us into like another part of this legend, which is <laughs> interesting. But anyways, we're jumping ahead. So that is one part of this legend and then the next part that comes up is you know like Arthur's out in battle he's doing his battle things and um after he's finished fighting he is very tired and now he decides to pull up to a random castle because he can't make it all the way back to Camelot but he's the king you know so like he could show up at a nobleman's castle where she is and everybody's gonna be like king come and stay so Merlin advises Arthur at this point not to stay in this castle but but Arthur's tired and he's not really listening so he goes and he stays in the castle and he has you know whoever they don't say outwardly who owns the castle but as these people are feeding him they're taking care of him he goes to lay down and then all of a sudden as he's beginning to rest he hears this beautiful harp music in the distance and he's again very enticed by the harp music and he follows it through the corridors of the castle until he comes upon Guinevere. And in this moment, he sees Guinevere. He's very captivated by her and he's in love with her. And like, he's a smitten kitten. And he's like, I must have her. Yes. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And Merlin's like, no, don't do that. He, no Merlin, bueno, bad news. No bueno. <laughs> Merlin's pretty much like, okay, she is a bad news bear. If you get involved with her, things are not going to go well. And Arthur, you know, credit to him. He's kind of pulling a thing that kings even in our modern days have done. Or like, he's like, no, I love this woman. She's the one for me. I don't care what drama she's going to go. So he basically, yeah. So he basically decides, no, he's going to take, he's going to take Guinevere's hand. And they, they get married. And that's kind of like where this part of the, the legend ends. It's just the, the introduction of Guinevere kind of into the story. And the fact that Arthur is genuinely in love with her. And I think it also continues to like paint his character as a noble, mm-hmm. genuine man. And unfortunately, we have the foreshadowing, thanks to Merlin, that him <laughs> loving this woman is actually going to be his downfall which we'll see in the in the later stories. So um, thank you for blaming women for the demise of Camelot. Again. Yay. (laughs) So after this, we see another legend. And then the the second this next legend is about I don't know if I'm going to say it's right. Mordred. Is that how you would say his name? That's how I say it. Okay. Who is who is essentially the well, 
in different stories, he's different things. In the version that I read, he, okay, so I will tell you the version that I I read, and then you can tell me the different part, like what's different. But in the version that I read, these two, these two legends kind of go together. And basically Mm -hmm. in the second story, uh, King Arthur and Guinevere have been married and living happily ever after for quite a while. They've been ruling at, we want to say at least 14 to 15 years at this point, they've been married and together. And Mm -hmm. one day a group of three women show up at the castle. There's three women and a boy. And when Arthur sees them, he doesn't know who they are. And Merlin explains to him that they are actually his half sisters. So as we know, his mother was previously married. And so they are the daughters of her previous marriage. Mm -hmm. And one of them is Morgan Le Fay. And there are two other ones as well. And the boy is supposed is Mordred. But in this version, he is supposedly the, <laughs> the son of Arthur and this mysterious woman that showed up at his door. So yeah, I've heard that version. I've also heard the version where he's just Arthur's nephew. Yeah, so there's two accounts of this. And this account is yeah. much more sinister because it actually <laughs> – and it, 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 it kind of goes into what we were just talking about about like condemning Guinevere to be the reason like Camelot falls apart because mm-hmm. in this in this version it's it's basically Merlin tells Arthur that Morgan Le Fay who is his half sister essentially concocted this plan to get her sister pregnant by her step or her half brother to produce Mordred <laughs> yeah So the girl that shows up at his door randomly is actually his half-sister, but he didn't know about her being his half-sister. They sleep together, she gets pregnant, and then she has this kid, Mordred. So he's absolutely kind, he's basically a product of incest, which is danger, danger zones already, but we know incest was like pretty, pretty commonplace a long time ago. Very much so. Even so. not that long ago, if I'm being even the Edwardian era, era was pretty uh, incestuous. But There's, anyway. yeah, it's fine. We don't have to go into that. We know that it's a thing. They like to keep the bloodlines pure. Eeky, eeky. Anyways, okay, yeah, pure, <laughs> purely crazy. I say with quotation marks. <laughs> But so, yeah, that's one version. And like you said, there's another version where it's just his his nephew, right? Which I guess would still mean yes. it's, it's um, a son of, of one of his half-sisters or whatever like that. Yeah, yeah. So this is kind of interesting because this becomes an introduction of Morgan Le Fay, who is a very mystical character in the stories. Um, mm-hmm. And so what ends up happening is that Merlin... Uh, is worried about Arthur. Arthur's taken on Guinevere, and now this whole situation is going down. So he ends up take he ends up taking Arthur to a lake, and in this lake there is Nimue, the Lady of the mm-hmm. Lake, and she emerges from the lake with Excalibur. And Merlin basically says, if you're going to be constantly surrounding yourself with all this danger and all of this stuff, you need some protection to get through it. So she is. She gives him Excalibur. And this is when Excalibur gets introduced. And Mm -hmm. I think there's also some type of shield or something that goes along with it. So that if he ever gets 
if he ever gets stabbed or hurt, he can't die. And so together, and apparently Excalibur is forged in Avalon and um, basically it has magical powers to protect him. So that's kind of like those two legends kind of go together in that way. But I thought it was really Mm -hmm. interesting because I always thought, you know, me not knowing things fully, I always thought the sword and the stone and Excalibur were like the same thing. And now I kind of realize that like maybe they weren't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Arthurian legends, like any legend, is very convoluted. Kind of like the Bible where you see like several creation myths in the very first chapter. (laughs) That is such, that's such a great example because that's really the case with these. There's like, we've already discussed the fact that there's multiple authors and people put their own twist and their own take on everything. You know what I mean? So, yeah. And, and, you know, let's not forget that this stuff was written down uh, way after it would have happened if it was to happen. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So inevitably, Wait. it's broken telephone. What did you say? You like that as a like kid. Between the 5th century and the, or sorry, the 6th century and like 12th century, it's like 700 years or something like that, right? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, it's, Which is crazy. it's a huge, huge amount of time. Yeah. So all this to say, it's those two parts of the legend are interesting, though, because this is like we've already had uh, an introduction at this point to Merlin. And now we have more mystical characters coming through Um, in Morgan Le Fay, who is considered kind of like a witch or sorceress. She's very interesting in this story because she's very dualistic. And then there's Mm -hmm. also um, uh, Nimue, who is the Lady of the Lake and and. Avalon is introduced as well, right? So that, yes. I think that's where we kind of want to like dig in on this episode is into these mystical elements. Obviously, that's our favorites. <laughs> Those things are our <laughs> favorite topics. Don't know if you guys could tell. Yeah, you yet, can't but... go around it. You can't get around it. No. Um, no, no. <laughs> do you think that Merlin was real? Or like that there was a Merlin that was real? I okay, it's a so loaded question. <laughs> Like, I will tell you an answer. I get to say an answer, but you're going to fucking hate what I'm going to say. Okay. <laughs> um, and I Let's don't see. Maybe I'll agree it. with you. Um, I What I'm going to say is I don't know and I don't really care because Fair. it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, like, their, their stories are big enough that they were alive, whether they were real people or not. That's kind of how I feel about That's in fair. general about most about most things. I yeah. I have to assume, I feel like, just based on all of the stuff that we've researched so far, that maybe he was, and then maybe he was a compilation. I know that in some of my looking into Merlin, at least in um, the kind of like the story that Jeffrey, we said Joffrey earlier, but maybe it's Jeffrey. It looks like Joffrey to both of us, but <laughs> Mel looked it yeah, up and I apparently like- it's Jeffrey. <laughs> It's supposed to be Jeffrey. It's the old spelling, the G-O-F-F spelling, yeah. which, yeah, so you're Jeffrey, supposed to say Jeff, but I like to say Joff. <laughs> we, talk, we talked about him in the last episode. Jeffrey or Joffrey. We like Joffrey better. We're going to say Joffrey. Joffrey of Mar- yeah. Mon- Monmouth. 
he kind of set the stage for what we know as the modern Arthurian le legends. He only wrote a couple of them, but like he kind of almost, if you want to say, he kind of set the the tone of the stuff that kind of came in the future. And then a bunch of other authors came in and added a lot of romanticism and this and that. And like, obviously mm -hmm. we'll get into that, but um, you know, he kind of took things from a bunch of different places. And what I understand is in his version, he may have conflated like two people, uh, like a Welsh kind of character that was known as being a wild man, madman. And then also mm -hmm. he might've conflated him with um, a prince who actually became the king before Uther Pendragon, which was his brother. Anyways, that's a whole thing. I went deep into that. Yeah. I, okay. I so here, <laughs> so. here's my thought process. Because, I feel like, like you're way more linear okay. in this than me. So you take it away. Well, no, I'm just like, I'm a historian, right? Like, this is what I went to school for. So that's just how my brain works. Yeah, you are. Um, <laughs> um, so historically, yes, it's possible. It was based on real person. Who the hell knows? Legendary possibilities uh, would be there was an authentic prophet living in what are now the lowlands of Scotland at the end of the 6th century who is most likely a druid surviving in a pagan enclave in the north. Um, so a Merlin prototype may have been a Celtic druid named Lelokin, and I probably like did not pronounce that I well. I read about that, who, yeah. Yeah, who gained second sight after he went mad and escaped society to live in the forest. And then a poem from the year about 600 describes a Welsh prophet named Merdin. Yes, yes, that's, yeah. Right? So in the 9th century before Monmouth, uh, there was a monk named Nennius. Now, Nennius's historical or his his writings aren't exactly reliable, but we keep referring to him because he used 5th century sources that are no longer in existence. Okay. So even though he embellishes stuff, his source work was stuff that we just don't have access to. So he wrote about Merlin being a fatherless man named Ambrosius mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. his prophecies. And then in the year 540, a monk named Gildas wrote The Ruin of Britain, which includes a mention of Ambrosius Aurelianus. And this person was a leader of the Britons who would have been fighting off invaders just before Arthur ascended the throne, which is what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And then there's like stories of, of a bard driven mad after witnessing the horrors of war who fled civilization to become a man in the woods. This is what I think. <laughs> I think that this all kind of covers different facets of Merlin's life, possibly. I think yeah. that maybe he was a Romano-British or Britain leader. And then served as an advisor next to Arthur. And then maybe he went to live as a recluse and went a little mad in his later life. Like, yeah. I think that kind of tracks the story of a person's life, but then it was all mashed together. That's kind of what, like, I mean, your brain is really doing it well on this because that's kind <laughs> of what I was thinking too, but definitely like could not <laughs> really put it together but this is exactly what I was thinking as well I was really taken by this story of um this character like going into the wild and kind of losing his mind after war um I think it's mm -hmm. very interesting for a few reasons first of all we know now in this modern era that war is 
like completely traumatizing. And that might sound like, you know, at this point, many people could listen to this and be like, yeah, obviously we know that, but this is like a concept that we've really only been discussing like pretty recently in our society, just how yeah. damaging war can be on the psyche. But here we have really, really early stories of, of, of war actually dr driving a man insane. Mm -hmm. But then there's that other element of him emerging and um, developing sight because like, I don't know if, if you've caught this at all in your research into the occult, but a, a lot of people in the world of clairvoyance and in the world of like psychics and things like that usually claim to have had something really damaging or really um, traumatic happen to them. And that is ultimately mm -hmm. what starts to connect them to having visions and, and seeing things. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh yes. It's, it's, it's something we hear. And, and it's, I shouldn't even say claim because sometimes it, actually they did, they did have very traumatizing things happen to them. And there is something about having something physically traumatizing happen to you in this, like in the physical world that starts mm -hmm. to bring on the sight of like an, an altered space or a liminal space. So I think mm -hmm. that it's really cool to see a reference like that so, so early on, because this is actually something like we see a lot, even, even now there's even authors that have come out with like, you know, their versions of spirituality in like our modern time that, that kind of follow in that same vein of going through something incredibly traumatizing that leads to them being, becoming kind of like a prophet or priestess or, or something like that. So yeah, I think that's kind of cool and interesting yeah. that, that that's there. I agree with you. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I know like we're talking about the myth and legend of Merlin, but I kind of had to just go into that because it's mm -hmm. a, it's a possible historical thread and it's a way to possibly explain all of these different facets and why they don't necessarily mash together in the way that they're presented to us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I find his character really interesting because like you said there's pieces of him that yeah it was a bit of a digression and a bit of a tangent I just went on there but it but actually it's an important one to to the character of who ultimately mm -hmm. like Merlin becomes because because he becomes so powerful if he's mixed also with this other with this other character of, mm -hmm. of Ambrosius or or whatever those, those yeah, Am Ambrosius Aurelianus. And Am Ambrosius Aurelianus was a real person. Like, that is historical mm -hmm. fact. So Yeah, and we kind of, and I think we were talking about this before the po podcast, that, like, I was I was saying to Mel that this Jeffrey of Monmouth guy, he's kind of like one of our earliest versions of, of a, um, a historical fiction writer. Like, we have many of those mm -hmm. today. And because we have a system for the way that we intake literature and historical fact we can differentiate but back then they didn't really have that so no yeah, he was passing not. it off as truth but it was it was some of it was based in folklore some of it was based in fact some of it was like his whole thing apparently in his book there's like a whole chapter dedicated to a prophecy of Merlin did you read about <laughs> that at all in whose book sorry oh in Monmouth sure. Yeah. So apparently part of his yeah. book, so his book is like about the kings of Britain, 
right? So yes. he goes yeah. through a huge history and he also kind of like ties in a lot of those missing links, like where did Merlin come from and all of this kind of stuff, like through that history, it's quite like extensive. Um, but yeah. at one, <laughs> but at one point he, after Merlin kind of, I think I told you this and I can't remember if I said it on the podcast or not, that story about the, the white dragon and the red dragon fighting. You haven't, we should definitely go into that at some point. Okay. Okay. I can go <laughs> into it now if you want, unless we want to go somewhere else. Cause it, it, it's a, it's a story. Like it's <laughs> no, but it it's is a, bit a long. cool story. It is a cool story. So for me, my question, <laughs> I just decided I'm going to launch into it. For me, my question has always been, where does Merlin first show up in these Arthurian legends, right? But the, mm-hmm. the book that Geoffrey of Monmouth wrote, it wasn't the Arthurian legends necessarily. It was like the mm-hmm. beginning of that, but actually it was like a history of all of the kings that passed through the British Isles. And let me tell you, there was a lot of them. And so, <laughs> fuck my There was legs. a lot of them. It was, it was very, um, it was a lot of fact like so like a lot of the the stuff that we pull from the Arthurian legends all the details and fantastical elements they come later Monmouth's version is really just like presenting there's mostly a lot of historical reference in it yeah bare bones and he starts it like at the end of like the Romans losing the Trojan War so um at one point let's just put it this way I'm gonna skip a huge chunk of it because it will like it's a podcast in itself but at one point the British Isles are not doing too well and the Archbishop of London goes to Brittany in France and this is kind of why I, I chose to start it at this area because I always never fully understood how Brittany, which is part of France, was involved in all of this and how the French fucking got involved in all of this in the first place. (laughs) So apparently, yeah, the Romans had pieced out. There was a lot of kings and stuff that passed in that meantime. But right now they're not in a good position and they're getting invaded a lot by Saxons and Picts, Mm -hmm. which are like the people from uh, Scotland at the time and so on and so forth. So anyways, the Archbishop of London goes to Brittany and basically goes to the the King of Brittany and he's like, can you like take us under your banner? And he says, I'm not going to do it, but my brother Constantine will do it. So Constantine Mm -hmm. goes goes to the British Isles and he starts to defend off all of the, all of the, the people or whatever, all of the Saxons or whatever. And then he gets married and he has three sons. And the three sons are Constance, who becomes a monk. And then there's Ambrosius. What did you say his full name was? Something Ambrosius. It's Ambrosius. Yeah, it's uh, Ambrosius Aurelianus. Aurelian. Okay, Ambrosius Aurelianus. And then there's Uther Pendragon. And those are supposed to be his three sons. And so this guy, this king, uh, he dies. Can't remember how right now, sorry. But he dies, and then it's like, who's going to take over the throne? Technically, his oldest son should take it over, but um, he's a monk. (laughs) So it's not really like his spot. So then, but the other two are actually young boys at this point, right? So Mm -hmm. there is a nobleman at this point, and his name is... Vortigern, 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 
Do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. I know who you're talking about. I had a hard time saying his name too. I just want to say Voldemort at this point in time. <laughs> so Voldemort, no. So Vortigern, he sees an opening to become the king himself. And so what he does is he goes to the monastery uh, where, where the firstborn son is, and he convinces him to leave the monastery and take his place as king. So he does that. So And then when he does that, basically what happens is Vortigern starts puppeting him and controlling him. So the story is old as time. So (laughs) eventually his plan is to have picked assassins. Oh yeah. That's how, that's how their father Constantine dies. He gets assassinated by a picked assassin. And anyways, then his son who has now taken over also gets killed by a pick and this nobleman Vortigern is like okay well we are gonna like pursue the picks we're gonna like kill the assassins but he was the one that actually got the assassins to do this in the first place right he had to kill the Mm -hmm. assassins as a show so he kills the picked assassins and of course it causes a retaliation That I think was going to happen. Oh my gosh. It's just so, I can't even <laughs> believe I can freaking remember this. Like, holy crap. It's crazy. Well, it's a soap opera, you know? Yeah. So anyways, now he is fighting with the Picts that are coming from like the part, like from Scotland, essentially the area we know as Scotland today. And he doesn't really have a lot, like basically the, the people in Britain are kind of getting stressed out because this is constantly happening. Somehow these Saxon guys roll up on shore with an army for hire. <laughs> and then this, this Vortigern guy is like, yeah, sure. Um, I'm going to hire you guys to fight off the picks. So thank you. <laughs> and in the process, he meets one of their daughters, falls in love with her and gets married. And so he, yeah, he does. immediately, yeah, he does. He emerges, <laughs> he emerges with the Saxons. The Britons are not having it. They don't like it. Cause like up until this point, they're like considered invaders. So this Vortigern guy is like giving these Saxon, these two Saxon warlords and like their people, he's like giving them land. He's like giving them a lot of stuff. They're basically family now. And the Britons really don't <laughs> like it. In and amongst all of this, Ambrosius and Uther Pendragon have been sent back to Brittany because they're young boys and they're mm-hmm. like being sent away to be kept safe so they don't get killed, you know, by this guy. And people are getting more and more pissed uh, about this whole situation. There's a bunch of other stuff that happens. Basically, what ends up happening is that I think somebody new gets crowned. I want to say maybe it's actually his son, Vortigern's son, which is like Vortimern or something like that. (laughs) And Vortigern is forced to flee. He's forced to flee to Wales. So this is a really, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I tried to figure out a way to shorten it to get to the part where we meet Merlin, but it's it's very hard to explain it no, all. No, you kind of need the backdrop you kinda, for it. Like you you kind of yeah. do, especially when you figure yeah. out who the dragons are, you kind of do. So anyways, this guy, Vortigern, he hightails it to Wales <laughs> and he has these soothsayers. So imagine he's on the run, he's in an encampment and he still has these advisors, these soothsayers giving him advice. And he's like, what do I do now? Because pretty much Britain is pissed at him because Britain, basically he's let Saxons come in and kind of like, you know, 
Yeah. They've been fighting against the Saxons for so long. And there is, yeah. And there's a little bit of a like, you know, there's bad blood. Yeah. There's bad blood. Exactly. So anyways, this new king who I believe is honestly his son wants to, to get, he agrees with the people of Britain. So he wants to get the Saxons out and he also kind of wants to punish his dad. It's the whole thing. So anyways, this guy, Vertigan, Vertigan, whatever, Vortigan, Gern, Vortigern, he takes <laughs> off to Wales. The soothsayers tell him to build a, to build a, like a, a defense, you know, not a castle, mm-hmm. but like, you know, like yeah, a, some sort of wall defense or something. A medieval kind of thing. I can't remember what the name of it is right now, but you know, like a thing with bricks that will protect him. <laughs> Let's call oh, it a deer. Well, let's call it a castle. Just a, fortress. Call it a, a walled defense, which, yeah, is a fortress. That's yeah. it. So they tell okay. him to build a fortress. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, I feel like my ADHD. You're almost there. You're, so hard. you're, you're so, almost there. I know I am. So he goes to build this fortress. And as the people are building the fortress, every day it's crumbling down. And he's like, I can't build this fortress because every day it's falling apart. So he goes back to the soothsayers and he says, what should I do? And they tell him, the soothsayers tell him he has to spread the blood of a boy born without a father on the land. And that will stop, that will stop uh, this, the building from falling apart. So he sends people out searching far and wide for a boy that's born without a father. And because of what you said earlier apparently uh, Merlin is born to a nun that mm-hmm. was, and he was conceived by her relationship within with the uh, incubus yeah yeah incubus. yeah, 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 yeah incubus yeah. is meant to be half human half angel that's yeah. where Merlin gets all of his powers from and because technically he has no father because mm-hmm. an incubus is not a human I guess He's the yeah. guy. So Merlin is brought back to this Vortigern guy who is running for his life right now. And he says, you know, I'm trying to build this castle and it keeps falling apart. And and apparently I have to spill your blood to make it to stop. So Merlin is smart. He's just clever. explaining this to the child. I have <laughs> to kill you now. <laughs> yeah. And but the kid, he's like maybe not a child exactly, but like around teenager age, I want to say in this story. Yeah. And he's like, has yeah, some self preservation. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, but your <laughs> soothsayers are actually lying. You don't need to kill me. You just need to know what's going on underneath. And he says, if you dig a hole, you're going to see that there's a great lake underneath where you're trying to build the castle. And there are two dragons, and every night they fight. And that's why your building keeps falling down. And so he decides to listen to Merlin wants to see if he's right. So he digs this tunnel underground and finds this lake and sees a white dragon and a red dragon fighting each or like laying there, but every night they get up and they fight. So when they dig the hole, the dragons come out and there's actually some, you can actually look this up. There's some pretty cool medieval drawings of like the white dragon and the red dragon kind of fighting Mm -hmm. each other. So every night the white dragon and the red dragon fight. And every night uh, the white dragon kind of like, beats back the red dragon but then the red dragon always comes back and so Mm -hmm. Merlin this is kind of where his prophecy starts off in in this and his he prophesizes to this guy 
that the white dragon represents the Saxons, the Saxons that this guy let into the land and let start to take over things. And the red dragon represents Britain, which if we look at stuff we know now, the red dragon is on the flag of Wales. And Mm -hmm. so the red dragon is being pushed back into the land and back into the thing and back into the country, onto the, like onto the edges of the country. And Merlin in this moment prophesizes that this is going to be the future of the island that the Saxons are going to actually take over and that the original Britonic people will be pushed back. And that's actually interesting to me because I realized there that the Britons at this point are actually what we consider the Welsh people now. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, they absolutely are. Which I didn't really realize that or put that together um, mm-hmm. before this. Yeah. And they fought long and it. hard. They fought long and hard. Well, cause when I think and of we're like formidable Britain, fighters for a really long time, when I think about Britons, I think about like our current spelling, like the British, you know what I mean? Yes. But yeah. actually in this yeah. one, we're talking about Britons, it's spelled B-R-I-T-O-N. And it's kind of like the, the different tribes that were associated like before everything that we know now. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize that they were actually like what we would consider the Welsh now. So anyways, that's all very, very interesting. But this is the first introduction of Merlin into the story and he leads out this huge prophecy and so Vortigern is like what do I do because obviously now he's seeing the Saxons are actually going to beat out and and Merlin basically says you should just run and hide because they're going to come for you and one day (laughs) the boar and then he says one day the boar of Cornwall will emerge and he will set everything right. And the boar of Cornwall is supposed to be Arthur. <laughs> right. Yeah, so Merlin's seeking out Arthur for a really long time and like made it his life he mission prophesizes to grow Arthur. him into Yeah, he prophesizes Arthur but then kind of like makes it his life mission mission to seek him out and like turn him into a good and noble king and make sure that he isn't corrupted by the systems in place and by the people around him. And like, he has really good intentions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Merlin has really good in- intentions. Yeah. And it's interesting because in the, just the basic legends, you're kind of like questioning, like, why did he take him away, take, take him away from his parents? Why did he do all this? So anyways, all yeah. this to say, after all this happens, the two, the two original sons of Constantine, they're grown up now. They come back and immediately Ambrosius is is considered the king. Like the Britons want all of this stuff sorted out. They don't really necessarily want Vertigan's son taking over things. You know what I mean? So he's mm-hmm. considered the rightful heir at this point. And so he is really accredited with like when they really start to like push off the Saxons, they they go after Vortigan and they actually burn him in, in one of his fortresses. Didn't work too well. He dies. Um, and then at <laughs> some point dick, he so. gets sick and he almost dies. And Vortigern's family, like people from his family, convince somebody to poison Ambrosius so he actually dies. And that's how <laughs> Uther Pendragon becomes the king. <laughs> you wonder how we get so swear to God. Like, <laughs> just listen. I swear I'm going really somewhere with this. <laughs> I can't tell you how stressed out I am. <laughs> oh, fuck. 
<laughs> the fact that that's just like a couple paragraphs in that story is just fucking. <laughs> it's pretty mind boggling. It's a wild but story. In the time that Ambrosius becomes uh, the king, that is the time when Merlin starts advising Ambrosius, actually. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because it's like we've we said. I swear, I'm bringing it back around. I'm bringing it home. We said <laughs> earlier that the, the two of them were kind of like conflated with each other, but in like, yes. and this is Joffrey's like, is it real? Is a fake story? This is like where they meet and they kind of come together, right? So yeah. that's yeah. also very very interesting are they the same person are they two aspects of the same person at this point and it's hard to know it's hard to know like again by the time jeffrey was writing or joffrey was writing whatever um it was so long after yeah there's no way to to, really know and we talked about that a lot in like the last episode and and the way that he says he was um, translating a text into Latin, but there's literally no traces of the text. And I'm sure that actually no. happens a lot with a lot of the old stuff. Yeah. But anyways, very interesting. Like this is where Merlin kind of comes into play initially. And I feel like a lot of these, so he's maybe piecemealed from different ideas or different archetypes and, but he becomes mm-hmm. quite he act. It's really interesting because if all of the things about him are true, he actually channels all of the hardship that he faced and he turns it into something that positively affects the future. And I think yeah. maybe that's why he's the type of character that people really hold on to. And, you know, you see traces of him even like in a character like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings, for example, mm-hmm. or many other wizardly, wise wizardly figures. Mm-hmm. Merlin is kind of like, there's a, there's an essence of him in all of them. And I think that that's where that whole thing kind of comes from. You know what I mean? I think so. I I, th- I mm-hmm. agree with you there. I totally agree with you there. Wow, this is just Merlin. We haven't even touched upon the other stuff. You know, I'm sorry. At the beginning, I was like, okay, let's do all of the other stuff together. Like, let's do it all together. It's like a mystical package. But then, like, when I was reading the Merlin stuff, I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> Merlin Merlin goes it's a lot so what what we can say about some of the other stuff what's really interesting about the Merlin figure or like the figure of Merlin in most of the stories is that he often has a really close relationship with a feminine character mm. often the lady of the lake who is described as being like this positive force in the Arthurian world mm-hmm so remember, like you touched on it, the the Lady of the Lake gave Arthur the magical sword Excalibur. Mm-hmm. Um, but also there are some stories in which she kidnaps Sir Lancelot as a child and then he becomes Lancelot du Lac mm-hmm. as yes. an adult, right? Lancelot I've heard Lake. that she, I've heard somewhere she kidnaps him, but other ones where he's like basically left without his parents. So she's yeah. actually just adopted him. Yeah, so who who knows? Lady of the Lake goes by many names, so Nemwe is one of them. Probably more famous now also because of the show Cursed. <laughs> that was on Netflix mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. Yeah. But also goes by Vivian, Elaine, and Nineveh. Mm-hmm. So in that way, 
there there are a couple of theories of like, well, there might be more than one Lady of the Lake, or maybe it's just multiple facets of her personality. This is all very complicated, okay? Um, Lady of the Lake's also been associated with a Celtic goddess and like stories of water fairies, mm-hmm. and she's super ambiguous. And in the most mm-hmm. early appearances of her legends and stories, um, she she loves Merlin, but like also still okay. So in in like the nice versions <laughs> of the sure. stories, in the, in the nice versions of the stories in the Vulgate d'Histoire de Merlin, um, she loves the Enchanter, seals him in a magically constructed beautiful tower so she can keep him for herself, and she visits him regularly and lo- ends up falling in love with him, and then. In a continuation of Vulgate Merlin, known as Sweet You Merlin, uh, the relationship's really different. And when Merlin shows her, okay, so there's there's a couple of things. When Merlin shows her a tomb of two lum- lovers magically sealed, she enchants him and then has him cast into the tomb on top of the two lovers. And then she reseals the tomb and he dies a really slow death in another story. Uh, he's then kept in a tree or in a cave underground and he's still there today. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I've also heard stories where he was in love with her and she wasn't interested, but she wanted to learn his magic. Yes. And then she she takes advantage and exploits that. We couldn't help. Mel and I could not help but notice that most, like most of the characters in uh, the, most of the female characters in, in Camelot, no matter who fucking wrote it, they're pretty one-sided. They're definitely like not <laughs> complex, diverse, multifaceted characters. In the or- no. original legends, no matter who, no matter who wrote it, they're like either an object of desire or they're an object of magic, um, but magic that turns sour. It's really interesting mm-hmm. because Merlin is kind of perpetuated as the as the like benevolent figure and then the the women in the stories sometimes they're benevolent benevolent but sometimes they're not sometimes they're quite um the opposite sometimes they're like sorceresses or like you Mm -hmm. know locking people in caves and things like that so we couldn't help but notice that (laughs) they're much more devious in nature and they're blamed for a lot of the things that go wrong in the fall of Camelot. Absolutely. Very heavily. Very, very heavily. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I do remember that. Like, she doesn't return his affection, but persuades him to teach her his magic. And then she uses his magic against him. So, like, Merlin is pretty indestructible, except <laughs> when it comes to the Lady of the Lake. She's kind of his kryptonite, sadly. Yeah. And that seems to, that also seems to be a theme amongst, because I was saying to Mel before we started recording that there seems to be a theme amongst, amongst the Kings. They all seem impervious, except when it comes to the, the charms of a woman. Um, oh yeah. Uther was in love with the green and it was like, I must have her. And then Arthur said that right? about Guinevere. These women didn't right? necessarily love them back right away. <laughs> Even it Egrine, wasn't necessarily a sleeps, two-sided relationship. Uther, even yeah. Egrine, when she sleeps with Uther, she thinks that it's her husband. And by yeah. everything that I've picked up so far, they don't talk about her husband per- very much. But from what I gather, she actually liked her husband. She <laughs> so liked her husband. And then Merlin helped Uther 
trick her and use magic to make Uther look like her husband to sleep with her. And that's how Arthur was born. And then, <laughs> yeah. And then they're pissed off when the, the half sisters of this other marriage show up on the doorstep <laughs> and they're wondering why Morgan Le Fay is, is bitter. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is she even bitter? That she's another very interesting character, which we didn't really get to even dive into her and Avalon and no. everything. But I always thought it was interesting. No. Morgan Le Fay, I couldn't put my finger on the le because I always thought of this as an exclusively like English story. But now that I realize there's so many like French like like influences in Lots this, now I understand because yeah. I think I think it's the French writers that really start to to build out Morgan Le Fay, which is basically meant to say Morgan of the fairies, right? <laughs> like character, yeah. right? Well, mm-hmm. and that's that's something that's kind of interesting because Morgan Le Fay, I mean, we touched on her before and she's a witch and everything like that, but bring it back to the Lady of the Lake. <laughs> Lady mm-hmm. of the Lake is associated with Celtic water spirits and goddesses like uh, Caridwin. Caridwin. Yeah, that's how you say it, I think. Oh, yeah, that's, who's that's actually like, Welsh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Who's and this Celtic goddess too, who possesses... Sorry? And Rhiannon as well, who's also a Welsh. Yes. Welsh and Caridwin are both... Uh, I mean, Rhiannon and Caridwin are both Welsh goddesses specifically that kind of get like adapted into the, Cel- the overall Celtic pantheon, but... Um, yeah, she has connection to both of them. Yeah, she does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also uh, to Breed, who is a goddess who kept watch over wells and like Curdwin would basically brew herbs and water that would grant wisdom to whoever would drink it and things like that. So like the Lady of the Lake is this wise figure, but is also associated to yet another goddess who in this story is then like diminished into being this horrible figure. Yeah. And I think I also read at one point, maybe um, the lady of the lake. Well, like you said earlier, the lady of the lake could actually be three different ladies of the lake, but also uh, at one point, maybe Morgan Le Fay and the lady of the lake were one character, um, which would kind of explain, because for the most part, I know the lady of the lake to be like quite a good character and I know Morgan Le Fay to be like a a dark character but what Mm -hmm. have we noticed about stories about women historically (laughs) and everything before they love to divide it they love it to yeah they love to picture women as either completely dark and obsessive or completely light and like giving and they very much we're not complicated beings yeah, no. <laughs> Didn't so you know? <laughs> the, fact, the, the idea that they could have been one character makes a hell of a lot of sense to me when yeah. when that is something that we've seen so much in time mm-hmm. leading up to this point when we go, when even when we were discussing Diana and like Artemis and all mm-hmm. of that kind of stuff, you know what I mean? So whew, it's really deep. And and so we know that we can see that it's possible that maybe Morgan Le Fay and uh, the Lady of the Lake were one person at one point. But again, like these are kind of kind of the things that we're up against when we're discovering or like going through all these myths and legends is that there there are so many different variations and things uh, for everybody across mm-hmm. the board. And and you know I kind of had this thought before we met up today about the fact that there are actual historians that have like dedicated their entire study to these legends 
Yeah, absolutely. And they're a little lost and confused too. They've got theories, but everyone has a different theory. Yeah. There's no way to like concretely prove anything, but it's all, it's all very educated guesses. Like a lot of history is educated guesses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we've said, (laughs) that's all we can do. We've said that like quite a few times actually in this podcast already. Yeah. Because the more we talk about it, the more we realize we don't know shit. (laughs) Yes. And that's kind of what I've always thought people always said when it comes to becoming wise, the older you get, the more you should know that you know nothing. And I have always thought that that kind of made sense in a lot of way. And and sitting going through all this stuff that we go through and and solidifying, it's very much solidifying. (laughs) So we didn't go too much into, we really just like touched upon the Lady of the Lake. There's so much more to say about the mm. Lady of the Lake and Avalon and the stories and legends around that. But I think we wanted to quickly bring her up because, you know, we mentioned Merlin as like coming from this really good place and having his own unique story, but also helping Uther to like get some chick pregnant that wasn't his wife and like all sorts of stuff. So he's not flawless, but <laughs> no. his demise, his downfall basically, especially in later stories, is the Lady of the Lake, who is often described as this positive force in the Arthurian world, but really fucks Merlin over <laughs> Ultimately. a little bit. ultimately especially in later legends so like you can't talk about merlin without at least talking about the lady of the lake a a little little bit bit. yeah yeah absolutely but i think this is like a really i don't know this was a legitimate rabbit hole into merlin (laughs) and but it was very interesting what was that thing you were saying before the podcast about uh, merlin living in a black hole oh (laughs) okay Okay, <laughs> this is because uh, Tegan's friend, Peter. Hi, Peter. Uh, you met up with him, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I <laughs> met up with my friend, Peter, and he basically said that there's a theory, which we're not going to get into the theory. We might actually bring him on the show to, like, get into that theory at some point. But he has a th- – there's a – apparently he told me of a theory that's out there where Merlin is living, hi- like, history in reverse. So he's not living – he's not going backwards through time or anything, and he's not Benjamin Buttoning or anything, but – like <laughs> he is living through history in reverse. So like, I, I think Peter was saying like the first time he picks up Arthur as a baby is actually him putting him down, for example. And then you said that he's, it's like, and then I in a black said, hole. <laughs> yeah, I was like, it sounds like he's like going through a black hole because there's a, also a theory that says that, you know, if we were to go through a black hole, we would basically see all of history in reverse and could kind of see the creation of the Big Bang before we all get spaghettified and die. <laughs> wow. Ah, no time time. Right? So I was just like, is it, is it, is that where, is that the liminal state that he's living in basically? I don't know. But I feel like it's a bit feels, of a mind fuck if that's so. It's absolutely, it's absolutely a mind fuck. And but I feel we like we should have Peter on to explain this better. I think so for sure. <laughs> but I mean, at the same time, it does kind of encapsulate like the way we feel about the Arthurian legends in general at this point. I want to say, or at least the way I feel about the Arthurian legends. Up, I want to say because every time I think I'm gonna like 
understand, like, just go through the story. It's like, it's a layer within a layer within a layer. And I had no idea. Oh, Tegan. I had no idea. You they should went know this. by now. It's never straightforward. <laughs> I know, but I didn't expect this to go that deep, man. Like, holy guacamole. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, anyways, <laughs> we hope you enjoyed um, this exploration into, into the really rabbit hole character of Merlin. <laughs> Also, BBC's Merlin is actually a good show, and I'm annoyed that it's not on Canadian Netflix anymore. I I should turn it on my VPN and put it in the UK and see if it's still on there because it's honestly good, and it shows Merlin – and obviously, this is like totally taking things out of context and is based on the Arthurian legends, but not – but it's showing Merlin as a young man for once Mm -hmm. and Arthur as a young king and like him trying to help. But he is this, like, when we think of magic and we think of people that are magical, like, thinking of something and having it appear in their hand and being able to move things with their minds, like, that's the sort of magic that's in the show. So it's, like, not accurate at all. But it is a good show. But I mean, like... And there's the dragon. And there's about, a big dragon. Who cares about accuracy? Like... <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, a, it's, it's just good. Watch it. It's, it's only... Good. All of this is only maybe, like, 20% factual. If... If... I don't know. Oh, that's I'm, a really high percentage. I'm like, I'm pulling a number completely out of my ass. But I feel like two, two percent. It's like it's like all stories with sprinkles of facts, <laughs> with factual sprinkles on top. Maybe I don't know, but you know, this to say, you can kind of drive drive what you want out of it. But I think it's cool. I like. I actually really like more and more that in like this modern time that we're developing the magical characters more. And I would mm-hmm. I would bet that at, the, at a certain point in the past they were already more developed, but that's probably been lost over time um and because of so. religious wars and and we'll see as we like we're talking about very mystical elements it's interesting because like as we go into the story later this takes a a vastly christian turn (laughs) so (laughs) well and that is a byproduct of the time that people were writing in right exactly so So we'll explore that as well but uh you know like all this to say it's, it's cool that we're we're exploring these characters more fully now in a time where you know relatively people can in most places, people can just believe what they want to believe, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll leave it there for today. Remember to like and subscribe. Send us an email, allegorystorypodcast at gmail.com, um, or follow Instagram, allegorystorypodcast, at allegorystorypodcast. Um, <laughs> and uh, we'll see you next time. See you.